you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to read Psalm 120. The theme of the sermon later is around uh, distress. When Jeff asked me to read this and I looked at it, I thought, ooh, <laughs> interesting psalm. Um, so I'm sure it will all become clear to us a little later. Psalm 120, it's on page 622 in the Church Bibles. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, we are starting this series um, in um, the Songs of Ascent, as you see from the the notices. And um, that's the, the direction in which we we are going and uh, hopefully uh, you'll be able to um, benefit from this short uh, series. Um, If you didn't know, I guess most of you will, but just in case, from Psalm 120 through to 134, we have 15 Psalms that are a, a particular group that are tucked in in what is called the Psalter. The Psalter is referred to as the whole book of Psalms, and here you have these 15 uh, uh, Psalms. And I want just to give a bit of an introduction to them. They are titled the Songs of Ascents. There's a variety of views as to what they originally uh, were intended for. Most people would say that they are for um, people who are making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to what is sometimes called Zion. Others, however, would say, no, what you have here is the people of God in that massive diaspora of God's people because of his judgment upon them, most of whom were in Babylon, and they were now returning with a sense of patriotism and joy and anticipation. They've come out of this godless culture and they're coming home spiritually. And as part of their worship, there they are, and they're singing these great songs and praying these great prayers. So it might be returning to Jerusalem from Babylon, coming to Zion. And as they do, they are celebrating or anticipating the great festivals which in Babylon would have not been permitted. So, I suggest to you what we have is a collection of psalms that constitute this distinctive group and is in itself a miniature book of psalms. As you know, the psalms are referred to as the the songbook of the Bible. And many of them are in the lament section. They're not all full of joy. Some are heavy with sorrow. Uh, And uh, this one, no less, is is quite a tricky one. It's, it's, It's overwhelmed with a sense of distress. As, as we shall see. 
Um, if that's the case, these 15 psalms, they can be divided into five groups of three. Five threes are 15. Five groups of three. The first two groups, first six psalms, if you like, as if you were to take the time to look, they deal with the external pressures of what it is to live in an ungodly world where the soul is harassed. Where expectation of God to intervene in their lives and so forth. That's the theme. The third group is interesting that it takes up the theme um, that is more general, more outward. Uh, there's no mention in the third group of the divine, of mercy, of redemption, of forgiveness, of prayer, or the sanctuary. But there's ample reference to the home and the family and children. Then the fourth group, uh, it's intensely personal and devotional. And if you were to, to make that little observation yourself, it would prove to be an interesting uh, theme. The theme is that of discipline and patience. And then the final group, the last three, is dominated by the concept of divine choice. That whatever's happening around in the world, God is a sovereign God and he's in control. Now, it's a marvelous theme, really, that would do well for if we were to pursue that. As it happens, we're just looking at these uh, five psalms. And so we're beginning then with Psalm 120. And just very simply and quite briefly, trust me, I, you, you will see that. The first is uh, the cause of his distress. The cause of his distress as, as it will unfold. And the second, the consolation that he has as he lives through and works out his distress. So that's the division of uh, the psalm itself. And um, although it's referred to as perhaps a psalm or a song, it really is a prayer, isn't it? Yeah, you, you, you see that. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues, and so on. So it's a very personal uh, psalm. Um, I would have liked to have borrowed from... Uh, I, Hannah and I, we bank with Lloyd's, and they've always got this caption, haven't they? For the journey. If you're a Lloyd's customer, you'll know. That's their mission statement. For the journey. It's quite clever, really, because at any point, wherever you are, we're with you, they say. As long as you keep putting money in the bank, that is. If you don't, you're on your own. But this is God who is with you for the journey. All of it, come what may, for the journey would be a marvellous uh, subheading, wouldn't it? Okay, just these two things then. First of all, the cause of his distress. It doesn't take a lot there uh, to know. We don't have to look in, in a, in a, in any, for any profound reason. You see it there that the prayer is prompted by a pervasive atmosphere of deceit and lies. Now, there are certain times when maybe we've experienced that at work with colleagues or perhaps even in our own family, God forbid. And there it is, a pervasive atmosphere of deceit and lies and vivid illustrations are used. It's a cry of a man who is both physically and spiritually exiled. And he feels, and sometimes uh, I think he, uh, he felt that because he was physically away from Jerusalem, that he was distanced from God. God doesn't live in church, we know that. We, we, we meet with him in a different way collectively, but he's with us 
for the journey. But he feels this, that he's exiled. And I think that this in itself is a sort of illustration or a picture of the church living in a hostile world. And you get glimpses of this. Turn, for instance, a few pages over to Psalm 137. And, and you don't have to think long of Boniem with the, by the rivers of Babylon. And it's a very poignant picture. Just think about it now. We are saying exiled physically, spiritually. Perhaps the family are fragmented as often in our society that they are. And there he is. They are, rather, by the rivers of Babylon. We sat and wept. Why? Well, he's feeling a bit sorry. They are, they're away from Zion, from the presence of God. And all that that conveys. When we remembered Zion, there on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You might say, what a good opportunity. And their reply, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So they feel their isolation. And so, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. Playing these harps and, uh, and these stringed instruments. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, and so on and so forth. So it's, a, it's an illustration often that the church can be like that. Marginalized in a society, people undervaluing its influence, often criticizing, perhaps even spreading innuendo uh, about God's people. And I don't know what you make of then and the presence of um, Meshech and Kedah in verse 5, for, for example. Uh, if you come back to Psalm 120. Uh, what it does, we'll, we'll come back to that just in a moment, but it does reflect the extent of this dispersion of God's people. They were scattered everywhere. And valuable lessons would have been learned of their pilgrimage, living in a hostile culture that is not favorable to the covenant-keeping God. That's why some people still find hymns like, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. That's to do with them coming out of the exile and their 40 years in the wilderness. But that... that evocative phrase, isn't it? Uh, some people say it refers to death of the unknown. But it's a crossing over. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. That could have well be sung then. But notice verses 1 to 3, the, the strong reaction of the psalmist to the, to the misuse of the tongue. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips, from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with the warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Just turn to one cross-reference. Turn to Psalm 64, just to see um, a, a parallel um, psalm here. Psalm 64. 
see um, the reference to the tongue and how distressing sometimes it can be. Yes, it can bring great blessing, but it can also be an enormous challenge. Psalm 64, hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint, protect my life from the threat of the enemy, hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the noisy crowd of evildoers, they sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their words like deadly arrows. Very vivid language, isn't it? Same, same idea. They shoot from the ambush at innocent man. They shoot him suddenly without fear. It's, it's the one thing that preoccupies the papers, the character assassination of people. And the rest of it is, takes up that theme. What lessons then can we take from this psalm? Well, at least two. The first is this, perhaps two negatives that will have a positive result. First, with this going on, try hard, don't be cynical. Don't say, oh, well, that's what everybody's like, and move to a generalization. Not so. Don't be cynical. And into this situation, as God helps you, be spiritual. Make a choice. Even if it does make you vulnerable. And even if people might think that they've pulled a fast one and got one over you. God is the judge. Trust him. Trust him. Sometimes you have to fight cynicism really hard. Don't be cynical. Be spiritual. Secondly, don't be isolated. Get involved. In some area of life, get involved. While I was preparing this sermon, uh, I think it was in Wednesday's account of the paper, there was an article called, Some Friendly Advice, and it was the under uh, heading was, the subheading, Good Companions Will Live Longer. And let me quote to you from the paper. Mark Henderson is the, is the science editor, and he says this, Social isolation increases mortality by at least as much as smoking, according to new research that shows bonds with friends and family are critically important to physical as well as mental health and well-being. People who have strong relationships with others are about 50% less likely to die over the average period of seven and a half years than those who lack a social network. Major reviews and scientific evidence has found this. Then he goes on to say this. The detrimental health impact of social isolation is roughly equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and heavy drinking of six units of alcohol a day. The scientist said, it is more harmful than failing to take exercise and roughly twice as bad as your health as being obese. And finally, medical professions should routinely, Dr. Copping, should routinely evaluate their patients' social networks. Not just ask them, are you taking the tablets? What friends have you got? How are you getting on with your neighbours? What do you like to live with? That's the questions you should ask them. Why? Because I'm concerned about your health. That's why. Having friends, having social network is, is good for you. They recommend more connection with other people. And then the, the final quote goes like this. The support of other people may reduce the harmful effects of stress and the influence of others may also encourage behaviour 
that contributes to good health and well-being. And of course, church life kicks into that, even though sometimes it can be uh, demanding and challenging. So, don't be cynical, be spiritual. Don't be isolated, get involved. Develop a network of people who will value you for who and what you are, and you them. So much for the cause of his distress and how you uh, can learn lessons from it. The second thing, cons- the, the consolation that he has in his distress. And we've just got two uh, headings here. And the first is, look at this, prayer. Come back to verse 1 again. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips, from deceitful tongues. What you have here is not a well-rehearsed liturgy. Not set prayers, not the liturgy of the temple that they would have missed so much. But what you have in verses 1 and 2 particularly is this raw intercession. There's a place for that. If you like, what you have is a painful lament pouring out his soul. I want to quote you from uh, Walter Burgerman, who says this. Laments are authentic expressions of faith, which are honest in describing life as it is often experienced. And how is it often experienced? Not always. Hard, lonely, hurtful, and charged with anger. Not always, but sometimes. And this is what he concludes. He says this, and try to concentrate on this. He says that a lament is a remarkable combination of honesty and dialogue. Frequently, we are honest, but unable to be dialogical, unable to talk. Or conversely, we are politely dialogical, but unable to be honest. If I say this, it's really on my heart. Someone's going to be offended. They could never speak to me again. So out of maybe British politeness, we, we, we don't engage in laments. Lament in Israel and in the Psalms are both that. Honest and dialogical. Precisely the combination results in joy and newness, the forerunners of the resurrection of faith. And then finally he says, laments are spoken by an individual in many of the Psalms. And then he illustrates, and I would like you to do this now as an example, turn to Psalm 13. Okay, here is a, here is an, a classic Uh, illustration, an example. And you might well want to uh, take this home with you and and apply it to yourself as we think of this cry uh, in distress. Just try it now then to have a quick look, and it will only take about a minute. Psalm 13. You can read it for yourself. Here's the outline, or the pattern, which is familiar to many of these laments These songs in the Psalms. First of all, you have a complaint. You see it there in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Well, that's that's a lament for sure. 
And then you have the confession. You see um, verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. It's not about me actually, it's you. You are the rock in my life. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And then there is the implicit vow of praise. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me, even though I feel that he hasn't heard my prayer. It's a lament with raw emotion. And verse 3, if you come back to Psalm uh, 120 now, as we try to con- uh, conclude its, its, uh, its application, um, just to see here, Psalm 120 and verse 3, it's the possible involvement, if you like, it, some commentators say this, and I only had one book because I lent my three books to Nigel King. He didn't give the back to me, so I had to prepare the sermon without any books, which is perhaps why I'm a little bit... Uh, Anyway, Martin, you've got the next lot, haven't you? So you won't be giving side uh, digressions like me. So verse 3, possible involvement in legal proceedings where falsehood is spoken. Maybe you've been involved in that with, with, with family or, or, or in, in given situations. Verse 3 has that idea. Legal proceedings where falsehood is spoken under oath by an opponent. What do you do? And so... There is this calling upon the Lord in verse 4. He will punish you with the warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals and the broom tree. Well, what does that mean? Well, the warrior here is, is an illustration of the Lord. Comes as the man of power and um, having the last say but the broom tree is a reference to simply to hard wood, which gives fierce heat. And uh, people who live in particular parts of uh, um, Australia, where there are these bushfires and these eucalyptus trees, they say they, they quite literally implode because of the oil that they have. And, and the heat is, is intense, it melts, and it, it consumes everything in its path. And you've heard of utter devastation. Can you see God like that? With fierce heat. That's this idea of a lament and a prayer. And finally, in these concluding verses 5 and 7, there's the, the contrast of peace. The you know, peace in the Old Testament particularly is, the, is this wonderful umbrella word, the shalom, the well-being of God. And so, meshech and kidah are metaphors for uncongenial neighbours. Yes, I like social involvement, but only with nice people. But here with neighbours who are difficult to live with. Possibly the idea of nomadic people. A bit like there's a discussion uh, on central news about uh, some um, uh, Irish and Roman gypsies who've occupied land. And you say, wouldn't you like them as neighbours? No, thank you. Here's Arabian nomads who have no time for God's people. 
And yet within that, there's a challenge, isn't it? The shalom of God. What is the characteristic of God's people? Peace. We're not, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to be peace lovers. We are peacemakers. We all love peace. Make peace. Peacemakers. They are the blessed. And you see what it is. Peace in contrast to these Arabic nomads. And in the context of falsehood and lies and self-interest. It's a very wonderful prayer in a way. And there's no, there's no pattern to it in the, in the same way as it was with Psalm 13. Some people, by the way, call the, the, the lucky psalm or the unlucky psalm, depending on which, which way you look at it. Psalm 13. But here is the psalm of a believer in distress. And the cause of his distress is the prevailing circumstances in which he finds himself. And what is his sweet consolation? It's this, that he prays and he brings peace. Brings peace into situations that are far from ideal. You might be in situations like that. Maybe at home. Maybe with your extended family. Maybe a difficult situation at work. Or maybe even in the church. And what is our sweet consolation? I hope that we are people of prayer and people of peace. Bringing peace. Peacemakers. And think of the Lord Jesus as he spoke to his disciples when he introduced this supper. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. It's for the journey. It's for the journey. So we're going to sing now as we use this prayer to come again before the Lord and making that transition of the cross of Jesus Christ that he made peace by the blood of the cross and invites us to come and dine, come and break bread and drink of this communal cup and reaffirm your love for him and for one another.